Welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 435. My name is Minter Dial, and I'm your host for this podcast. This week's interview is with Jamie Wheel. Jamie's a polymath and co-author with Stephen Cutler of the global bestseller and Pulitzer Prize-nominated Stealing Fire, how Silicon Valley, Navy SEALs, and maverick scientists are revolutionizing the way we live and work. Jamie's founder of the Flow Genome Project, an international organization dedicated to the research and training of ultimate human performance. Now he's just published his latest book, Recapture the Rapture, Rethinking God, Sex and Death in a World That's Lost Its Mind. In this conversation with Jamie, we dive into his journey, the value of sports, his flow genome project, and what took him to write these two powerhouse books. We specifically look at some of his core concepts including around ecstasy, catharsis, and communitas, society's apprehension of death, psychedelics, and much more. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. Please consider the drop in your rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show with Jamie. Jamie Wheel, I'm thrilled to have you on my show. My goodness. Um, you have penned two books that were the most important books that I've read this year. I'm glad to say that one led to the other. And through the contact Martin Sherp in Amsterdam, um, I got a chance to catch up with you. Martin uh, is on a beautiful trip, should we say, with synthesis in, in Holland, and you are on a beautiful trip. So how about in your own words, let's start with you describe who you are and how you got to where you are. Well, um, I suppose in, you know, in my own words, I would just say, um, well, actually I just heard somebody say it and I, and I thought this was a good thing. I, I'm a contemplative because for years and years I thought, fuck, I'm terrible at meditating. And, that, and so, somehow there must be something deficient. But the reason is because I'm really, really good at contemplating. Like so far I'm ever wondering and wandering. So I am, I would say a champion wool gatherer um, who's just always been curious about big questions of life and always been drawn to the most vital dynamic and alive experiences I could find. And that's led to mountains and oceans and extreme sports and mountain guiding and wilderness medicine and those kinds of things. It's also led to an academic career in uh, sort of neuroanthropology. So what is the history of human cultures and habits and customs, but also what's the biology underneath that? Um, and then, you know, sort of formally uh, led to me founding an organization called the Flow Genome Project, which is kind of a combination of those things. <laughs> it's how, how do we um, pursue and attain peak states, um, whether that's flow states in sports events or meditation, dance, music, movement, um, or, um, or you're sort of and in service of sustainable long-term human development and growth. So really designing and delivering dynamic learning experiences is probably the thing that I, that's the thread I probably have been tugging on the longest and, and probably the hardest in my life, which is just how do we suck the marrow out of life and how do we become the best that's in us to be? A beautiful thing. I'm wondering who might've been the biggest influencers, the things that sort of the aha moments that prodded you along. Cause I mean, you're not born out of the womb with this 
then all of you know little things happen that allow you to say this is what I want to spend my time on and get energy from as well as deliver energy. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think I have I have to give a hat tip to my father to start with. He was um, a polymath, you know, multi instrument musician, uh, race car driver, military test pilot, um, all of these things, and so his whole jam, you know, dinner times would be Sunday Telegraph, acrostic crosswords, and you know, Shakespeare and the Greeks and, 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 and the classics and this and that, you know, with bluegrass, finger-picking banjo and classical guitar and ragtime piano, while he was then flying the most dangerous planes in the world and pushing them to failure and then mapping it with differential calculus. So like that, you know, and he had a love for oceans, for fishing, for water skiing, for the alpine environments and skiing and those kinds of things. So he, you know, he passed on a lot of that. Um, and I think there was an element of simply not being able to see the world without also seeing the zeros and ones and the schematics of how it was all happening. Mm. So, you know, full hat tip. And I think that's probably the most heartfelt acknowledgement I've offered to the old fellow, <laughs> maybe, maybe ever, you know, like just, yeah, I have to fucking give it up for him. Um, it's good. And, uh, and at the same time, then sort of into my own life, um, Ken Kesey was a, it was a huge inspiration in university. Um, Who's the founder of electrical acid tests and the merry pranksters, as most people probably listening to you know. Um, and I even had his one of his quotes um, in my college yearbook, which was, I'd rather be a lightning rod than a seismograph. So for a long time, I went and stood on top of tall mountains. You know, I was looking for the lightning. Um, and only in my my older years have I turned to the seismograph part of actually writing <laughs> some of it, writing some of it down. Um, but from there, I would say uh, Gary Snyder, who was the Pulitzer winning poet, of author of Turtle Island. He was also the hero of Jack Kerouac's The Dharma Bums. Um, he was a mountaineer, the first Zen monk comes to the human being after almost a decade in Japan being the first Western ordained monk, then moves into the Sierra foothills and lives sustainably, builds his own cabin, skins and tans his own buckskin, raises his family and is a professor at you know, UC Davis. So uh, Kesey, Snyder, George Leonard, who was um, master of Aikido, as well as one of the co-founders and developers of the human potential movement in Esalen. Um, those are some of my sort of Dharma uncles. Robert Anton Wilson, um, would be another the kind of crazy uncles would be the the Learys and the Lillys and the Crowleys and the you know they're they're off right they're, they're off in the sort of corner you can't ignore them but nor did I completely resonate with them you know Kerouac sort of would be another one, presumably as well well I mean I thought Kerouac was a bit of a drunken and a mama's boy whose sole quality was actually falling in love with better men and then writing about them in the terms of like Neil Cassidy and mm-hmm. and um Gary Snyder. I never actually resonated with Kerouac much, although mm. it was obligatory reading, mm. you know, because we were kind of coming up through that scene. Beautiful. Well, those many of those names have also uh, made me tick. So in your Flow Genome Project, which you have founded, and, and, and in many of those citations, and specifically I'm thinking of your father, mm-hmm. something that is always curious to me is the physical aspect as well as the, let's say the cognitive load, the thinking, the exploration of the mind, but also the exploration of the body. It feels like those cannot be separated. I mean, not in my life. You know, like if I had been disembodied and just hypercognitive, I think I would have just burned out the circuits. 
Um, and if I'd only been embodied with no life of the mind, I think it would have just become overly dull. Like I could never just do the ski bum thing or the surf bum thing, or even the dead head thing. Like I could never do just those things of the seeking of, of the, the flow state or the peak experience. Um, because I guess I was always, um, I was always contemplating and that, yeah. and that they fed each other, you know? So literally mountain biking in Colorado or backcountry skiing, and you're going past these, you know, old collapsed mines, or you're seeing these pathways, you're seeing this Indian, you know, rock site, rock art or something like you're like, whoa, what's been here before? Who have we been here before? How has this worked? And that recursive loop, I mean, some of it was growing up in the new forest growing up within sight of Stonehenge, Salisbury Cathedral, you know, where we went to school, that kind of thing, right? Mm. So there was always just that sense of there's always stories. There's always stories in the stones. What are those stories? And it's whether it's the etymology of a word and its origins that are just mind blowing and you'll never forget the definition because you now know the backstory or it's or it's the standing stones or it's an, you know a beautiful old house or it's in, in North America, you know, some multi-layered, you know, history of human land use. So for me, it was, they were always flip sides of the same coin. And they were always counterbalances um, to, you know, that I could be fully embodied because it was so rewarding to shut off my mind. But then if I turned on my mind, it always made the places and spaces that we were playing and adventuring in that much more meaningful. So I, I have practiced many athletic endeavors. I enjoyed playing. I, I was a tennis coach and I played competitive squash and so I, I, I think about these things as well. And it, somehow when you say polymath, there's actually, it's poly everything. It's poly physics, poly mind. And, and, when, and when you talk about apophenia in uh, Recapture the Rapture, <laughs> this idea that you can see meaning at where there is no intentional meaning, when you have so many interests and abilities, it, it, there's for me, a fundamental sense of meaning that comes out of many more things. You see so many more things than someone who's limited in you know, just one strict vertical, like you know, a big deadhead or just a rock climber. And so you can find more meaning, but there's always the danger of apophenia all the same. Do you, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, um, and to just, to define it, right? So, so apophenia is often a hyper-dopamine saturated space of pattern recognition where then you see the signs and the portents in everything and nothing. So ink, ink blots and tea leaves, um, you know, or Q and Q drops, right? I mean, we're, we're, see, we're seeing it a lot these days, right? People That's are sure. jacked up in a hypervigilant state of salience, meaning will this make me or break me? And then they find a piece of a puzzle that they think is making them, saving them. Um, and then sort of they get oversaturated. And it, you know, it lends to not only conspiracy things, but flat fuck paranoia or, or sort of a schizophrenia where the, you know, the black cats in the matrix are everywhere. Um, so I don't know whether I'm just dim, you know, or unimaginative, but I, I, I find myself only I can only comfortably stand in a very um, what I would call a sort of an agnostic Gnosticism, you know, like that, like the, the idea that like the Gnostic part is direct experience of magic, mystery, mayhem, like no question about it. I've actually, you know, you, you've lived it in your bones, but then the agnostic part is, yeah, fuck if I know what it all meant. And that 
unwillingness to get too far out over my skis to make truth claims just because of the experiences I've had. See, I can't shake that. And at this point, I don't think I want to. Um, and so when people ask, well, what do you think about the universe or the fundamental nature of consciousness or the hard problem or soft problem of consciousness or a thousand other big, important questions? I'm like, I don't know. I honestly don't even ask those questions because I'm not sure that, you know, or where do we go when we die or, you know, fill in the blank, right? It's like, if, if there's not a way to experience it directly and know for oneself, then I'm not that interested in conjecture. Mm -hmm. um, and so apophenia is, you know, you're willing to assert patternicity where there may or may not be. And, and I, I think I subscribe more to that kind of Occam's razory thing, you know, of like mm, probably the most parsimonious, the leanest, you know, the leanest and stingiest explanation is, is probably the best for now, you know, until further notice. And so um, for me, the benefit of being, having a sort of interdisciplinary background, you know, the downside is jack of all trades, master of none, right? right? You, you never actually fucking pick a lane and you never get good enough at any given thing to be useful. Yeah. Um, and, but the, the upside, and actually David Epstein, um, who wrote a book called Range, uh, which is a fascinating book on sporting talent and just basically how the Roger Federer's and the Lionel Messi's and, and all sorts of true prodigies actually delayed specialization as long as possible. And they practice other things before yes. they actually ended up doing that. Yep. And you can make the case for Elon Musk and other people, right? That the, the polymathery of it all um, is actually very, very helpful because most solutions actually aren't within a, the given strictures of a vertical ivory tower or silo. They are, they are analogous. And there's been some fascinating research on even hard science uh, scientists and their ability to even think and formulate hypotheses in analogies. Like if this is the, if this, then that, or this is like that, but in a different domain and the people and the scientists who, and typically they move three steps out of their silo, out of their chosen discipline. And the ones who can do that um, come up, generate more novel solutions, more patents, more citations, you know, by, by an, an order, an order of magnitude on the ones who are just locked in their lanes. So, um, I can't say I did it on purpose. I just always was interested in what I was interested in. And it very rarely stayed within a given, a given domain. Um, but that, that ability to, you know, and people have offered that feedback about this book, Recapture the Rapture, is just like, wow, you, you're, you know, you're quoting ancient Greeks, but you're also quoting cutting engineer science, and you're also doing this comparative religion thing, and you're also doing a cultural analysis or existential risk. And it's like, well, yes. Of course, you know, because we all are. Yeah. I mean, this is the human experience. And I just never saw, it never made sense to me to um, pursue one myopic aspect to the exclusion of all the rest. It does feel when I, I mean, Recapture the Rapture is, is a marvelous read. Mm -hmm. and, and you do really launch into so many areas. The, the, the thought that comes to my mind as I'm speaking is the theory of everything. There's a notion of touching on everything and putting it all together, but you have to go down all sorts of rabbit holes and then you find the, ah, and then you, then you connect into another one, you go down another rabbit hole because I mean, I was thinking of uh, how do you come up with the name of that? But uh, the name that came to my mind was basically sex, drugs, and rock and roll, why it all fits. And, <laughs> and, and that's sort of what it is. And, 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 and you, you do it through, reasoned thinking about how the brain works and the functionalities and the hormones that are in our body 
And then you talk about the, the crazinesses that can happen in a psychedelic trip and how you can achieve ecstasy in, in so many different ways. And, and it makes sense. You don't have to take LSD to have ecstasy. You can have great sex. And, and I love how you just tie it in, as you say, without sort of saying preaching, it's one or other. You can do them all. Yeah, it just sort of feels like humans are user manual. You know, if, if there was a sort of anthropologist or even a, an MD from outer space and would sort of come down and say, hey, <laughs> you guys seem to be rather clever monkeys with clothes, but you're really buggering up how to make the most of who you are and these beautiful bodies and minds you're given. Here's how they actually work, like free of taboo, superstition, mythologies. Yeah. It's just how you work. And oh, by the way, if you optimize how you work, you get to some really fascinating places, which you've kind of already, you've always known that, but you keep forgetting it. And then the people who find out either get killed or, you know, or thrown in, thrown in dungeons, but actually you are more than you imagined. And, and you're probably actually needed at full strength coming shortly anyway. So let's help you all just kind of dust yourselves off and get back on your feet and start playing a little more nicely together. What do you say? <laughs> you know, let's do that. And so that's for whom the book is, is to help us be more ourselves and be the best version of ourselves. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, I think this, you know, the, the sort of TLDR of the book's thesis is to say, hey, the hour is late and the stakes are high and we aren't at our best and we haven't been for a while. We're sort of deconditioned zoo animals. So how do we dust ourselves off? Yeah. Um, you know, take a radically, you know, a sort of ruthless situational assessment. What are, what are, what, you know, how late is the hour and how high are the stakes? And I would advocate about as high as they've ever been for self-aware homo sapiens. Mm -hmm. Therefore, how do we reclaim our courage and our conviction? And we know we, 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 we fetishize those moments in films and stories, right? Where the hero with their back against the wall and against all odds and they're like, okay, now's the time. Like I'm out of fucks. I have to do the impossible. And that's shooting torpedoes into the Death Star or it's Leonidas and 300 and the Spartans, you know, at Thermopylae or, you know, take your pick or it's Harry Potter or, you know, or it's Frodo. Yeah, we, we love those moments. I mean, that is the whole be all and end all of our, of our mytho poetics for the most part is what, what is that inflection point? where someone ceases seeking pleasure and avoiding pain and enters into the noble, the valorous, the courageous, the heroic. And, and we're all needed at that point now. And, and so the question is, is I, I don't think pep talks are sufficient. You know, I don't think post-it notes on our bathroom mirrors, you know, as morning affirmations are, are adequate. I think that, that sort of there's nothing less than a full... DIY initiation into being twice born humans into truly, um, you know, as the ancient Greeks said, as mystery tradition said, you know, um, die before you die. Or as Goethe said, you know, if you don't know the secret, die and become, you will remain forever a stranger on this earth. So if we're sort of first born humans, that's the ones that got shot out of the birth canals and into worlds that were cold and harsh and nasty, brutish and short. And for most of us, there is a degree of resentment and resistance to that experience. Mm -hmm. I mean, we might get lucky for a while and sort of stay in a womb-like condition where we're winning and we're getting all the brass rings and everything feels like, you know, like my hashtag best life. But at some right. point, right? Life kicks the shit out of us, if not right. immediately. 
And so we're strongly incented to try and transcend or bypass, reject, transcend, or bypass this human experience. So we tend not to show up fully for it. And whether that's sex, drugs, internet browsing, shopping, alcohol, pornography, you name it, we just are seeking to sort of crawl back in the womb however we can, which is not us at full strength. And this is half of the meaning of the title of the book, Recapture Our Raptures. How do we actually show up fully engaged, no hesitation, no holdbacks, and no distraction to play our walk, you know, as good old Pink Floyd said, right, a walk-on part in the war, not a lead role in the cage. How do we actually do that? How do we undo our, you know, the keys to our cage are the keys to the kingdom. They're one and the same. And how do we show up fully? So part of the problem outside of education that doesn't open our eyes to these types of topics, we've got systems whose, as you write in Sealing the Fire about this sort of $1 trillion business, this underground. So there, there are, there are like an app to shrug. There are those who get it, very small group of enlightened people who are able to, you know, traverse all these different types of terrains, physical activities, cognitive explosions, emotional uh, ecstasy. And then there's, there's so many things that seem to be cramping it, namely in the form of governments and different policing states, if you will, that are, go against us. So we might be awakened, but do, we, how do, do you feel like we need also to change the governance models or are we just gonna do that with abstract, in abstraction of them? Well, I mean, and I, and I make a couple of allusions to this because this, you know, the, this book is focused very much on the psychosocial, the kind of the, what's happening for us as individuals and what do we do collectively in the realm of culture. And then say, look, there's a thousand other really hard things we also have to do. Let's make no bones about it. Sitting on, our, sitting on cushions and figuring out our kumbaya will not change the world, but it's also a necessary prerequisite that we have the wisdom, the inspiration, the courage and the compassion to then go and do the things you're all hinting at. So how do we um, steer this proverbial aircraft carrier, right? At a time when it feels like it's going off Niagara Falls, right? And so, so the trick there is um, I have no idea. And I actually, this was, this, this was what I studied in grad school like literally 500 years ago, I, I, I studied proto-European contact. And it, cause I didn't want to, I didn't want to just study, oh, dances with wolves. It was super groovy for a while. And then they all got removed to reservations. I was like, let's, let's get back to the century plus or minus two, where it was a clash of civilizations and still more or less a fair fight. So you see the Iroquois playing the French off, you know, off the British and, you know, running the table in, in New England and Canada for, you know, 200 years and crushing it. Like that to me is interesting. You know, the Lakota coming over and dominating the Great Plains and like what was going on there and, you know, Little Bighorn and those kind of things, like really getting to see those, those kind of movements. But, you know, also 20th century Tibet versus China, you know, and the calm, the calm gorillas who were effectively the Lakota of the Himalayas and kicked the living shit out of the Chinese while Dalai Lama was like peace and love, like the calm, the Kampas were kicking ass, you know, and, 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 and knocking the tar out of the Chinese army. Um, to me, those have always been interesting. And a question is like, how can we, how can we migrate from quote unquote, you know, late stage capitalism with many moribund and corrupt institutions running the table? And, and we do not, I would argue, have a free market. 
you know, by any stretch. We have a, we have a captive, rent-seeking, crony capitalist market that is anything but free. And so how can we free the market? How can we reclaim the de democratic institutions so that vox populi really does mean something, the, 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 the vote and the voice of the people, and not whipped up by demagogues, not, not mob mentalities, you know, but truly the best of us in our collectives. How can we do that? And the short answer is, I have no idea. And, and history isn't rosy on, on our case studies, because every time you've had vibrant indigenous cultures, or you've had spin-off spiritual movements, whether it's Quakers and Shakers or it's Cathars and Templars or, you know, or Sufis, you know, or, 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 um, you know, what, or Tantricas, you name it, right? If you get a little good, or the Essenes in the desert, right? You get a good thing going on the side and it's seen as threatening and you tend to get stamped out by the empire collecting the coin of Caesar. Yeah. So how do we innovate um, vibrant and inclusive human culture going forwards that doesn't recommit the same sins of omission or commission don't know but i would say it starts with like it can't not include um a return to bioregional tribalism so we literally like we live here we i mean yes we spend so much psychic energy on our social media avatars and the, who followed our tweets and this and that but really our meat suits are very much in 3d and we eat and we shit and we breathe and we drink and we live and we die all where our where our mail comes yeah. and we're often really, really fragmented and disconnected from our next door neighbors and our watersheds yeah. and our food production and, you know, and where our children are educated and, you know, all of that. And, and, and it's maybe, I don't know, I don't know if Europe is feeling on the sharp end of this as much as uh, the U.S. right now, but, you know, drought, droughts, floods, fires, you know, these are, these are very real and they are experienced locally. And, and, you know, Brock Long, who's one of the directors of FEMA, uh, you know, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, you know, he said last year when there was, I think, a hurricane coming into Florida and New Orleans at the same time that there were California fires, he's like, hey, he public address. He's like, hey, Americans, you've got to stop thinking of FEMA as a 911 disaster on, you know, to dial a disaster relief service. We're not, we, we don't have this. You know, you might think we have it. We do not have it. And which means local folks do or nobody does and in that locality in that grounding ourselves back in bioregional like natural context is a chance i think to also mend potentially some of the culture wars because you can then play the game of like well you are my neighbor we both care whether the water comes down the street or the fire clips those treetops therefore our politics and the divides and fox news and msnbc or whatever the scream or the guardian and the telegraph whatever the screaming matches are matter less right now than us both having a vested interest in the here and now and then you can just say how far out do you see and how big is your is your care and we can go to our neighborhood, it could be our street, our neighborhood, our town, our country, or the world. And then it can be humans, it can be people who just believe the same things we do, it could be our faith, it could be our ethnicity, it could be our language, it could be the whole world, everyone, everywhere, everyone, it could be plus all the little creepy crawlies and the four leggeds and the two leggeds and the winged and the finned. We don't have to all agree on those. Like you don't have to be a cod carrying gay space communist vegan.
<laughs> for us to right for us to put out the fire coming down our street and so that sense of getting back to bioregional tribalism plus courageous action and i think the truly courageous the sort of satyagraha from gandhi or the soul force from martin luther king that i don't think is available simply on tap i feel like there does need to be an alchemical or transformative process to unlock that such that it is true it's lived and embodied truth for a person and my, and i think one of the only ways i'm aware of is by experiencing a death rebirth initiatory or transformative practice or ritual you've got questions we've got answers business leadership ownership and sales can be challenging Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. You talk a lot about um, catharsis and mm -hmm. how pain is cathartic and useful for us. It feels like maybe through COVID, where I assume you are doing much of the writing, uh, the, 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 the crisis, the meaning crisis that you talk about, existential crisis, COVID has sort of put a, a magnifying glass on that. Is that your experience? How would you describe the effect of COVID on this? Is this just another manifestation or an accelerator? I mean, it, it sure does seem like um, it added... Um, I would say probably an accelerator or, or, or a thinner, thin end of a thick wedge. Um, and, you know, I, I steer clear of politics and political discussions because they're just I noticed. So thank, thankless and unsatisfying. Um, but I, you just can't honestly assess where we are right now without just naming and acknowledging the fact that we had, have had a malignant narcissist and sociopath in the most powerful office in human history for four plus years and the gaslighting and the dissociation trying to reconcile those experiences has created a collective madness and and both on the side of doubling down on everything the fella has said and on the side of knee-jerk re rejecting everything and and um and i think there have been a, a number of splinters in our minds that have led us to our current moment where we're literally i mean we're just a bunch of completely discombobulated primates bumbling around running completely incompatible simulations of reality like we're not anywhere near on the same page anymore like and i don't mean just sort of nice polite dinner party cocktail conversation i mean like we are literally stumbling through 3d shrinking at shadows and feeling threats and salvations in antithetical places to each other it's a, it's a wonder we can even fucking make traffic still work, mm. you know? And, and some of them, you know, things like every time there's been one of these schisms, it's created a paradoxical reaction. So like the Access Hollywood tape, 
right? Way back when, 2016 in the autumn. Everyone's like, oh, that's it, game over, dude's done. He is just the most misogynistic, heinous thing ever said. No national level politician has ever survived something to like, like game set match. No, wait, what? And then you get Harvey Weinstein and then you get you know, Access Hollywood begets me too. Yes, mm -hmm. fucking all men, hang the lot, right? We, which is an illiberal, right. an illiberal sentiment from liberal advocates. Yeah. You're like, wait, how did that happen? Fundamentalist. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The same thing with without Charlottesville and there's good people on all sides and George Floyd, I can't breathe, right? You don't get defund the police and Antifa. You get these opposite and equal reactions of what appears to be egregious. The fact that rhinos, Republicans in name only, are now being, is being used to vilify actual Republicans where the populist gate crashers now spouting it have don't subscribe to a single plank of the conservative party platform. So you're like, wait a second, what's that about? The idea that like there's a global pandemic and suddenly what political party your governor is determines whether or not your state is getting aid and we're not doing a federal response to this. Is everyone for yourselves? Because we actually want to see you fail so we can get elected again, you know, like time after time after time. And so you get things, you know, and the same with Jeffrey Epstein, the royal family and two US presidents directly and repeatedly and deeply implicated, not just kind of glancing blows, right? And the motherfucker dies in jail and whoops, the camera was off that night and the gods fell asleep, gives us hashtag save the children, gives us mm -hmm. pastel QAnon. Right, you can't have the satanic death cult sacrificing children without those pieces. So you can kind of see, right, in in our sort of collective meaning making maps, every single time we've had a true like just schizophrenic tear, we've had this virulent reaction that is dysfunctional if you just look at it, but you realize it's actually adaptive for survival it's the whole schizophrenic double bind of like you know a child being raised by an abusive parent who beats their child and then later relents and sits them on their knee and says it's only because i love you so much and then the kid is like fuck me how do i reconcile these two things and the answer is schizophrenia like that's i i i either lose my mind or i subscribe to an alternate interpretive reality where these things are somehow reconciled, even if it's gobbledygook to an outsider. So one of the big pieces of your book uh, is about this meaning crisis. And you talk about meaning 1.0, meaning 2.0, and now meaning 3.0. I wanted to run by you a thought, which I've had, which is that I absolutely have been talking about a fundamental lack of meaning. And underneath that, a lack of grounding, because if you are grounded, then you're not going to run after all sorts of things. You, you don't need to. You, you are where you are, and you have a, a sense of purpose within you. This lack of meaning, I feel like people are attributing meaning, not in a Pafinia-style way, but attributing meaning because they have nothing meaningful in their lives. So if there's a, a risk of someone else dying, oh, well, I'm going to help them. Look at me. I'm going to, I'm going to you should wear a mask. And I'll tell everyone else to do things because that makes me feel meaningful. And, and rather than work on themselves, they jump on bandwagons that they attribute meaning to rather than working on themselves. And I was wondering what you thought about that interpretation. Well, I mean, that sort of fits in the trope of, you know, the, um, the 
do-gooder social worker who's really just conflicted up a middle-class twit, you know, who's guilty of their own privilege, right? You know, so, so there's for sure, do we sometimes, do we externalize the thing we're missing ourselves quite often and perhaps? Now, that specific example where you're talking about kind of um, our policing of each other in the last year or two is, is complicated by the fact that this is a global and social pandemic or at least event and therefore our collective actions inform our individual and vice versa. So there can be um, some well, well-intentioned and, and, and valid reasons to say, hey, where we go one, we go all, which is one of these goofy things that QAnon's now taken. They're not wrong on the way we go one, right? They're, they're not wrong in having that as a rallying cry. The question is just, where are we going? <laughs> like that's the, you know, that's the million dollar you know, uh, predicate to that uh, question. Um, and, and there is, um, and at the same time, I think a lot of the well-intentioned backlash against effectively vaccine propaganda, mask propaganda. And when I say propaganda, I don't mean it disparagingly. I just mean it as a technical category, which is every public health agency is always spouting propaganda. They always take what is a complex, impossible and messy reality based on the research and all these things, boil it down to binaries, create rhyming fucking slogans, and then push out the answer that they want. That does yeah. not mean it's all nefarious, right? It just means you are attempting to mobilize, especially in a free society. Propaganda is more important, not less important, because we don't have the power of the bayonet or prison, right, to enforce compliance. So we have to propagandize. And as I don't know why the WHO and the CDC has been so extra, especially inept in, in this last 18 months. But I mean, even this week, you know, Pfizer's like, we're doing a round three booster shot as within 24 hours of the CDC being no booster shots needed. And you're like, burr, burr, like, wait, what is it? And then they post something saying um, schools can be open in the autumn, but um, all the kids who aren't vaccinated, which is kind of the definition of kids because they're not allowed to be vaccinated, must wear masks. So you're like, mm, so we're not really kind of open this is just more of the same like what so yeah there, there have been so many yeah and then you get quote unquote the mainstream media which is typically center left right reinforcing everything from vilifying wuhan lab leaks and saying oh that's fake news and that's bad because oh the orange fellow was saying it and he was saying it for racist Chinese reasons, but there could actually be really good reasons, but no, no one can say it. And they're like, oh, well, no, now you're actually allowed to say that because, you know, three, you know, a New York magazine and, and, and maybe there was a Wall Street Journal piece. So now we're actually allowing us slash you to conceive of the inconceivable and you get the social media censorship and all these things. So it has just become, unfortunately, the establishment right, the meritocrats and the technocrats have so thoroughly shat the bed in the last, you know, specifically 18 months with COVID, but let's say the last five years as well with their reactions to the illiberal tendencies on the right, they've given up the high ground and they've bungled their credibility also. So now I would say we're just in complete and utter epistemic collapse. Yeah. There, is, there is no more center and there is no high ground. There's no moral claim I mean, like, you know, if you think back to when we were kids, you know, Walter Cronkite might have said, hey, everyone, settle down. This is getting a little out of hand. Let's return to the core tenets of journalism as the fourth estate and our percentage, our pursuit of unbiased truth to give you guys an informed citizenry, the empowerment right to vote, said Thomas Jefferson and probably Winston Churchill and a few other smart people back when. 
are you ready? And everyone would nod and probably play along. And now we've just got bomb throws. I mean, when Fox News is now considered moderate compared to the alt-alt right, right, you're like, okay, all bets are off. We're just, we're not in, we're not in even remotely a shared reality anymore. I subscribe. You so you talk about these three parts: ecstasy, catharsis, and communitas. Mm -hmm. uh, inspiration, healing, and connection in another expression. For for since it's an issue of we're a small group, this tribe that let's say subscribes to this type of thinking and the the, the beauty of ecstasy and then and the need for catharsis. What what opens the the eyes to this how can we how can we get people to read your book how can we how do we get people to open up to this instead of feeling clamped down go back to wearing a suit and do what i was told to do maybe because of social pressures what are, what are the things that we need to do to break this up well i mean i i think i'm more of a sort of laissez-faire taoist on this one i mean i I, th I think sort of life does it to us you know, and by the way, I, I'm not sure that many people are putting back on the suits and going back. Well, that's <laughs> true too. But I mean, the, the thought, general the thought. mutiny about yeah. the old way of doing things. Um, that's true. I think that there was a journal, Wall Street Journal article that said 25 to 40 percent of the workforce aren't going back. And then I read a recent one this week that was saying up to 90 percent are seriously thinking about it. So, you know, the idea of people simply refusing, um, I think, is important. Um, I think, look, bottom line is is that life lives us and no one gets out alive. So peak states can, can happen, they don't have to. And if you know how they happen and how to make more of them, you can fill your life with a few more, but, but pain and suffering for sure happens. You know, that, that sort of, it's got, it's got the second law of thermodynamics on its side, <laughs> you know, yeah. like it, it's almost sort of like ecstasy is optional, but, but suffering is pretty much guaranteed. Um, and we're social primates, so we do it in community. Now, the community can be dysfunctional or functional or transformational, but we do it together. Very few of us just live in a box our whole lives. So, so my sense is, is that, you know, I think of those things as a triangle or a three-legged stool or a flywheel. And, the, and what's interesting about it is that you can kind of come in through any of those doors. So if you think about you come in through suffering. Right, So you come in through suffering, you've had disease, divorce, illness, bankruptcy, some profound loss, um, and then you find a support group, let's say. And, and that could be Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, it could be a church group, it could be a shared survivor group, take your pick. Online forum. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. And you find those other people who, and suddenly your unique pain and shame doesn't feel so unique anymore. Problem shared, problem halved, all those great Community. things. Community. Yeah, and you're like, holy shit, this is amazing. This is life-saving. Quite often, feeling found, feeling seen in community based around your pain actually then catapults you up to a peak experience. I found my people, right? And maybe now I have some impulse or desire to then share this or go and turn around and help and support mm -hmm. other people, whatever that would be. You can come in through the top. You can come in through a peak experience. You can have a profound satori in a meditation retreat or a psychedelic experience or a dance whiz bang or a crazy prophetic dream or something like that. And you can go, oh my gosh, what was that? And either go and look for other people who have found similar things or you know, invariably in peak states, it seems like you, you almost never get out with just unicorns and rainbows. It almost always feels like, oh, I've seen through a glass darkly. I've seen it all. And 
a, half of it is my punch list of things to do. Here's, here's all my sins of omission and commission. Here's the things I ought to have done, have left undone, et cetera. So here's my homework. Okay. So, right, you have, you have your you know, view from the mountaintop. You also see the hole in your roof down below. <laughs> You're like, whoops. Okay, and now I've got to go back into catharsis and who are the people I share this with? Mm. You know, or, um, and, you know, and another one, right? I mean, the point about this flywheel is it can be used for good or ill, right? So jihadis and neo-Nazis use the same exact methodology they will say hey you are isolated alone and angry young man almost always right that's your catharsis come along with us and then we promise you glory and you've got you've got that cycle as a very very powerful recruiting tool um, and enrolling tool and and so it can be used for good or ill and i guess the premise of the book is saying it's already like that meaning vacuum that you've been talking about is a vacuum and nature and culture abhor vacuums, not just nature, right? So it's getting filled with bad actors, the QAnons and the jihadis and the Aryan nation. If we don't architect healthy pro-social versions, then we lose everybody to fundamentalism or nihilism. So how do we reclaim the moderate and inclusive middle with healthy and pro-social cultural functionality? One of the, you mentioned young men and I think there, there's a real issue in, in the, this notion of preparation for life. As you say, pain is a natural situation. And in our Western world, we've inoculated or at least eliminated uh, the entry into manhood. It's pushed off. There's no specific moment where you become a man. It's, you know, at, at best, it's you, you have a big rugby game and you, you make a big tackle and you showed yourself. Basically, we've created the situation where the, the notion of, of, of practicing resilience, dealing with shit, has been removed. And Johnny is perfect. And we're hyper-grade inflation, 106% on a mass test. And then, and then they're not ready for uh, their real life. And so what they do is then they jump on a bandwagon where they feel like it's their salvation which means things like fundamentalism or other attractive ideas that feel salvational for them. But mm-hmm. uh, so I feel like a big part of our problem is the way we are educating and specifically thinking about how men are educated with their extra need to uh, you know, move and testosterone and, and, and fight. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, like that's a, that's an ongoing uh, topic. You know, the absence of rites of passage and and the move from child to man or child to woman is a profound one. Um, as is marriage, as is dying, just to name a few, right? And that there's a few a few others in the mix. But the fact that we have um, sort of atrophied rites of passage. Because, you know, I mean, there's been so many anthropological studies on the fact that like sullen teenagers, like literally it doesn't exist as a phenomenon in many indigenous to semi-traditional cultures because it, it is a switch. You know, you go from one day you are, you are a child to one day you are an adult and then you're an adult and there is no lounging around for a decade in your parents' basement, you know, <laughs> scrolling TikTok. Um, so, so yes, I think we could gain an awful lot from um, more pronounced and actively transformative 
rites of passage, trials, and initiations. But it's also, you know, it doesn't let us off the hook for fixing our dysfunctional society that we're initiating these folks into. So if we've got a bunch of, you know, adolescent mentalities in our society, which is, you know, I am conditioned as a consumer individual to be seeking pleasure and avoiding pain and having all of my needs met, including many I couldn't even, wouldn't have never thought of had I not just been, had I not just seen that ad or commercial, but I want it and I want it now. Well, then what are we initiating folks into? You could have the most profound rite of passage, but if we're bunging them into that, that mess, we haven't solved that much. So I think the, the idea, and you know, I wrote about this in the book, which is if, we, if you are a baby boomer, a Gen Xer, or a millennial, we were all born into an absolute historical anomaly bubble of peace and prosperity in the, develop, in the developed West, right? And it's never been thus, and it will likely never be again. And so we got fat, lazy, and entitled. And so there is, you know, the question is, is how do we shake that off? And you can see this in um, Spartan and Tough Mudder obstacle races and CrossFit and hot and cold ice bath and contrast therapy, the Wim Hof phenomenon and intermittent fasting and all these things, right? We're desperate to regain some metal, regain yeah. some form, you know, the whole, the whole, you know, the battle of Waterloo was won on the playing fields of Eton, right? I've heard, I've heard that. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, we, we are desperate for those fucking playing fields. We need to be muddy and cold and yeah. get hit and, and feel and prevail in which, ways that which, we haven't had to in half a century. Which is so why I think, Jamie, this notion of being physical is a portion of your or and, and how I feel I've gotten into it. So it's not just in the mind. It's doing the shit and it's hard work and it's extreme and it's difficult and it's muddy and it's sweaty and it's really gungy human as well as high thought and enlightenment up here if you separate them then we get disembodiment i want to end on one thing jamie since um you and i um have shared um although i'm an american it's sort of more normal quote unquote to like the grateful dead and i have long subscribed to the idea that once you know you die you become more grateful. I think this is the second big issue that we have in our society. We have tried to efface longer living. Uh, don't talk about death. It's a taboo topic. It, it feels like this is a good place to end. But where's your? Where, what do you think about that? And what is your favorite Grateful Dead tune? Whoa, 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 wait. So what do I think about the whole dying thing? Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, yes, I'm all for it. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I, I think that um, I, th I do think I think that that die before you die is a non-negotiable. Mm -hmm. And there's a million different death practices. You know, sexuality can be a death practice. Psychedelics can be intensive meditation. Extreme sports can be combat, can be martial arts, can be there's there's a there's, you know, public performance. Hell, man, the, anything that, that risks annihilation of some shape or form of everything we thought up until that moment. Mm -hmm is you know travel like global travel where you suddenly you don't know the language you don't know the food the customs the where the sun is in the sky and the smells and the birds and the things that can kill you that too is a death practice there's an anonymity 
to your old self, right? So we can pursue death practices a thousand different ways. And generally our lives are richer and more varied and more profound, the more of those we cultivate. Mm -hmm. and, and in that sense of no one gets out of here alive. To me, the inflection point is do, can I? Can I move from seeking pleasure and avoiding pain? That's the default zoo animal setting, mm. right? Just the, the kind of impulsive sensation seeking hedonist mm. into something more valorous. And the only way to do that is to, is to stare over the screaming abyss and, and contemplate our own annihilation. And then on the, on the dead, I mean, you know, it, it's, I'd love to do that. There are, I mean, I love, I love many lines in Terrapin Station, right? Mm. The storyteller makes no choice. Soon you will not hear his voice. His job is to shed light and not to master. But the, but the other one, like without any sentimentality is Ripple. I think, I think Ripple, you know, is, it gets ridiculed. Well, again, it gets it's it's, it's snootied as a campfire tune and it fucking is for a reason. Um, but to me, it's one of the most Zen Cohen-y reflections on uh, the mystery of the human experience I've, I've ever heard. And, you know, and, I, you know, and the ending of like having just laid out the beauty and the magic and the mystery, you know, if I knew the way, I would take you home, right? With the implication, I fucking don't, man, but I'm sitting here singing this beautiful song anyway. And I think so, that's um, the best any of us have. Yeah, so when you say shed light, but master of none, it sounds a little bit like Jamie Will when you talk about the, the, the jack of all trades, but master of none. And, uh, and then on the ripple, um, at, my, at my best friend at the time's funeral, um, when he was 16, we played ripple uh, as hmm. uh, to, to sign him off. So it's a meaningful song otherwise for me. Jamie, um, to get your book, um, Recapture the Rapture, and Rethinking God's Sex and Death in a World That's Lost Its Mind. Uh, also, where would you like people to come? How would you like people to reach out, get, hire you for your great work? and otherwise um, connect with you. Yeah, I mean, the easiest is just recapturetherapture.com. And there's places to get the book. You can obviously get on Amazon to do that kind of stuff, but there's toolkits, there's, there's lots of downloadable kind of open source things that people can make use of. And if you're interested in any of the kind of the trainings and the proper stuff we do out in the world, in the wilds and everywhere else, um, you can find us at flowgenomeproject.com. And I will say that I, um, I listened to your audio voice, your voice. So I knew your voice before I got to mm. record it. So bravo for that. Jamie, thanks a million uh, for what you're doing, shedding light. Um, and uh, I think it was a masterful story. I'm looking forward to staying in touch and following what you're doing. Thanks a lot, Jamie. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show and would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash interdial. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on minterdial.com. Check out my documentary film and four books, including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote. Stephanie Singer, a convinced man. I like the feel of a strong.
Welcome change agents to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts.